with me to John chapter 18, starting in verse 1. John chapter 18, starting in verse 1. Uh, we are moving through the book of John, and we are really coming to uh, the close. We have only four chapters left, and uh, what a journey it's been over this past year. Uh, I've titled my teaching, A Tale of Two Gardens. A Tale of Two Gardens, and I'll tell you why in just a moment, actually probably towards the end of the message. But first, I want to ask you this question. Has anyone here ever been to a Brazilian steakhouse before? Yes. I thought that would get us energized, (laughs) fired up, ready for lunch. If you've never been to a Brazilian steakhouse, I'll explain it to you. Uh, First off, it's basically an all-you-can-eat buffet of the most delicious meats that you can ever imagine. And so the first thing that happens is they bring you in and they introduce you to the salad bar. And let me give you a pro tip. Do not go to the salad bar. That's their attempt to get you to eat cheap greens that you can eat at your own home at any time versus the delicious meats that they have. And then uh, they sit you down and they have uh, this little uh, tab and on one side it's red and on the other side it's green. And when it's green, that green means bring on the meats. That's right. And you can yell or, or, or they'll just bring them to you, either way. Um, but uh, at that moment, they bring out just skewer after skewer after skewer of just the most delicious food of all time. Um, they're like, would you like some bacon-wrapped shrimp? Absolutely, I would like some bacon-wrapped shrimp. Would you like this incredibly seasoned chicken? 100%. Would you like some sirloin? I will most certainly take some sirloin. And they just pile it on. And then the next step, if you've been, you know this, the next step is the meat sweats where you just eat so much that you just start perspiring. And personally, I make it a point to only go probably once every five years. I feel like that's just all my body can take. But the point of it is that uh, at a Brazilian steakhouse, they just keep on bringing out just morsel after morsel after morsel of just the best food. And in that same way, um, I was studying and reading uh, this passage of scripture that we're about to read. And as I was reading it, I couldn't help but think of a Brazilian steakhouse, honestly, just because this passage of scripture just keeps on bringing out morsel after morsel of just how amazing and how beautiful and how incredible Jesus is. And as I read this, I just was blown away once again with with the beauty of Jesus. And so what we're going to do today is study this passage, and we're going to feast, if you will, on just the beauty and the amazing reality of who Christ is. And so that's what we're going to do. That's how we're going to dive in. But uh, let me encourage you, because our goal, our vision as a church, is that we want to be disciples of Jesus. We are dedicated to following Jesus together with, with each other, together with other disciples, And the reality is that for us to follow Jesus, we have to know Jesus. We have to study him. We have to understand who he is. And I love what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's up on the screen. It says, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. So that means you and I, when we think about Jesus, Jesus is the Lord. uh, When we think about Jesus, when we uh, reflect on him, what it says is we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So as we study Jesus, as we seek Jesus, as we walk with Jesus, we are changed to become like Jesus. And that's what we want to do today. And so with that, I'm going to pray one more time, and we'll dive in. 
God, as it says in that verse, we need the Holy Spirit to open up our eyes, to show us Jesus, and to be changed. And so that is my prayer for myself. That is my prayer for this church today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So John chapter 18, verse 1. If you're not there yet, you still have a little bit of time to find it. But just a quick recap. Um, the first 12 chapters of John cover approximately three years of Jesus' ministry. The next five chapters of John cover approximately three hours of Jesus' ministry. As John, um, as John takes us through the Last Supper, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Uh, we see the Passover. We see Jesus' final teaching to his disciples. We see this incredible prayer that he prays, but now the moment has come. It's literally time for him to take a walk that will lead him towards the cross. And so it says this in verse 1 of chapter 18. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, I'm going to give you a little geography here. If you can imagine that on this stage, if this side of the stage is the city of Jerusalem, and then the, the other side of this stage is the Mount of Olives, and on the Mount of Olives, there's the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, in the middle, there's not a podium, but there's actually a valley, and that valley is the Kidron Valley. And there's a picture up on the screen that's going to show. This picture is taken from the Mount of Olives looking into the city of Jerusalem. And so basically, it would be taking the photographer from this vantage point across the valley looking in. And so Jesus, he would have walked down from the city, walked into the valley, and then on somewhere on the Mount of Olives would be the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a picture, this next picture, of a grove of olive trees on the Mount of Olives. And so this may not have been the exact location, but very, very similar to what Jesus and his disciples would have seen as they are in this garden. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 2. It says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. And they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. In chapter 13, we discovered that Jesus had identified that Judas was Jesus' betrayer. And so he dismissed Judas, and Judas, while Jesus was teaching, he had been busy. He had gone to the chief priests, he had gone to the rulers, and they had assembled a mob. It was a mob of Jewish soldiers, but there were also Roman soldiers there. And so this is a small army that is now walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane. Look with me at verse 4. It says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. Verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And, and again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, let these men go. And this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. 
Now, there's a lot going on in these few verses, and we're going to actually spend a lot of our morning studying them. So for now, we'll keep reading. Look at verse 10. It says, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant's ear, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name, in case you were wondering, was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, have you ever had a day where when the day started, it was going completely fine, and by the end of the day, you looked out and you thought, I royally screwed up that entire day. Like every possible thing that I could have gone wrong, I did. You guys tracking with me on that? Has anyone had this day? Okay, well, I just want to let you know, Peter is in the middle of one of those days. We could call this Simon Peter's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And next week, we're going to continue to see Peter make mistake after mistake. And so we're not going to study too much about it right now. But suffice to say that in this moment, he pulls out a sword, he cuts off this guy's ear, and Jesus says to him, you are actually messing up the plan of God. You may have good intentions, but what you're doing is getting in the way of what God wants to do. And in Luke's gospel, we actually read that Jesus heals this servant's ear. But for now, let's keep reading. Look at verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers was brought, or excuse me, the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They brought him and bound him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Now, a quick shameless plug. As you guys know, we have released uh, a new app. On the app, in the sermon notes section for this week, um, I loaded five pictures that I took while I was in Israel of these specific places. And so just a few kind of behind-the-scenes photos of what these places actually would have looked like. And one of them that's really fascinating, uh, they have a place that they really believe is Annas' house in the middle of Jerusalem, and there's a holding cell underneath that they believe Jesus actually would have been held in. And so there's a picture of that. Uh, if you have the app, you can scroll down to the notes right now. If you don't, don't download the app until after the sermon. But check it out. I think it'll be really interesting. So next week... We're going to study Jesus' trial, and we're going to study the beginning of uh, his trial that ultimately leads to the cross. But for this week, what I want to do is I want to focus on the Garden of Gethsemane. And what I believe is, and I don't think this is an overstatement, that in the Garden of Gethsemane, the most important decision in human history was made. It truly is one of the most important moments on planet Earth throughout the entire history of the world. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one of them tell the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we're going to actually take a moment and we're going to look at a couple of the different accounts and extract a few things from them. But remember, the point today is we're looking at Jesus. We're studying Jesus. And I want to show you three, or excuse me, four beautiful realities that we're going to see about Jesus as we study the Garden of Gethsemane. 
So first I want to look at Luke's gospel, and this is what it says in Luke's gospel. It says that Jesus, and this is in the garden, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, and he knelt down and prayed. And he said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So here we see that Jesus is actually in anguish. He is in agony. He knew everything that was going to happen to him. He knew the physical pain, that he was about to go and, and be crucified, which the Romans had actually devised as one of the most brutal torture and killing methods known to man. He knew that he was going to be beaten, and so he knew the physical pain. He also knew the emotional pain that he was going to experience. Not only was he going to be abandoned by his friends, he was going to be betrayed by one of his disciples. And for the first time in all eternity— he was going to experience what it was like to be far from God. On the cross, when the sins of the world were on his shoulders, he was going to say, God, God, why have you forsaken me? As the Father turned his back on the Son because of our sin. So he was going to experience physical pain, emotional pain, but he was also going to experience spiritual agony as the sins of the world were placed on him on the cross. And so he knew what was going to happen. And in fact, he's so stressed, he, he's so overwhelmed that he's sweating drops of blood. And, and this is actually a medical condition called hematohydrosis. And it's when someone's blood pressure rises so much from stress or fear that the tiny blood vessels in, in, in the skin burst and you actually do perspire blood. So, so Jesus is in agony here. And what we see here. The first of the four realities about Jesus is we see suffering Jesus. We see suffering Jesus. The truth is that Jesus suffered on the cross and before the cross. He wasn't just a robot sort of just gliding through the motions. And I was thinking about it. Our willingness to suffer for something shows us how much we care about that thing. You know, for me personally, I think about moments where, where I've gone through a lot. Um, when I uh, was uh, first dating my amazing wife, Katie, uh, she lived in North Carolina. I lived here in Florida. And so uh, we had to figure out ways to see each other. And we had to, you know, buy plane tickets or drive. And, and there were times, multiple times, where I would preach on a Thursday night at the harbor and I would drive all night to see her. And I would literally, I would preach, I'd leave, and throughout the night, I'd be driving. And if you've ever driven through the night, like, you know there is suffering involved. <laughs> and like, especially like midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., it's all good. When 3 a.m. hits, like, you really start to like, just see the road in like, many different colors and many different lines. And like, you're like, slapping yourself to be able to stay awake, like, hanging your head out the window, just dumping monster drinks on your head, whatever you have to do. But to me, that suffering was entirely worth it because of how much I love my wife. And if you can multiply that suffering times a million, 
If you can multiply that love that, that I had times a million, what you get is the love that, that Jesus has for us. And it, and it says in Hebrews chapter 12, I want to put it on the screen, that it says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And this is what I want us to look at. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him. What is the joy? Well, the joy was knowing that millions upon millions of people would be saved because of this moment. The joy was you. The joy was me. As he looked out into history and said, people need a savior. People need to be rescued from their sins. People need to be brought back into relationship with God. And the only way to do it is the cross. And so if you've ever wondered, man, I don't know how Jesus can love me. I'm not sure if God truly loves me. All you have to do is look at the cross. The amount that he was willing to suffer to bring you and to bring me into life. So at the cross, we see suffering Jesus. Next, I want to look at Matthew's depiction of the Garden of Gethsemane. And in Matthew, we're going to see a little bit of repeat. And it says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then it says, he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is impossible, not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. Remember, he prayed three times. That's gonna be important a little bit later. Then he returned to the disciples and he said, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go from here. Here comes my betrayer. So in this moment, what we see is this incredible interaction between Jesus and God the Father. You see, Jesus is praying and he's incredibly honest. He, he isn't like, God, I'm, I'm stoked about this. I'm fired up. Let's go. I'm ready. He, he's literally saying, God, at this final hour, I know this is why I've come. But if there is any possible other way for us to do this, now would be a great time to talk about that. Like if there's a plan B, a plan C, a plan D, a plan E, like let's discuss it. But because how I'm feeling right now, I'm not sure if we can, if, if I want to go forward. But what he's saying is even if in my, in my emotions I don't want to go forward, I'm willing to go forward. I'm surrendered to you. I'm obedient to you because not my will, but your will be done. And so we've seen suffering Jesus. And here in the garden, we also see surrendered Jesus. Surrender, Jesus. Jesus was totally obedient to the will of God the Father. He only did what God told him to do. And this is so important, and there's a couple different application points that I think you and I can pull out from this uh, reality. Uh, the, the first one is this, that there are many people 
that when they look at religion, they say that there are many different roads and paths to God. That, that yes, Jesus is one way. Yes, Christianity is a great philosophical idea. If you want to believe that, that's fine. But there's other ways to do it. It doesn't really matter what you believe, just if you believe it in good faith, if you do good things, and you'll be fine. But here's the reality. If that were true, then God allowing Jesus to go on the cross would actually be incredibly cruel. But here's here's Jesus saying, God, if there is another alternative, let's take it. And so if there was another way for you or for me to be saved, then why did Jesus actually need to die? But the truth is, there is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one name in heaven and on earth by which men can be saved, and it's the name of Jesus. You see, the reality is, amen, amen. The reality is that for you and for me, we need a savior, and the only path toward salvation is through a relationship with Jesus, not doing good works, not being kind enough to people, but actually saying, Jesus, I need you to save me from my sins. And so that's one application point that's really important. Another application point that I think we can think about when we think about Jesus in the garden is this. Very often, we like to downplay our own sins. When we do something wrong, it's very easy for us to say, not actually a big deal. And we have people in our lives that we do think are doing really bad things, right? Like we can look at the news and be like, there's some bad people out there. We can be on a text thread with our friends and be like, yeah, my friend's friend, she is doing some rough stuff. We, we can be talking about our family members or, or, or coworkers and we're like, yeah, like, trust me, if you want to know somebody who's bad, they're really bad. But I don't think any of us would be like, well, yeah, I'm actually perfect. Like, I never do anything wrong. But a lot of times, we can downplay our own sin. Like, yeah, like, at, at worst, they're like B-level sins. Maybe like C-level sins. They're not big deals. But what I notice is when Jesus kneels down and says, God, if there's another way, God wasn't like, you know what? We are kind of making a big deal out of this, aren't we? Like this whole cross thing, maybe it's going a little too extreme. Like let's, let's relax, just come back to heaven. We'll forget the whole thing. He didn't say that. He said sin is so serious that actually someone does have to pay for it. Someone does have to die. The wages of sin is death. And yet Jesus is so kind and Jesus is so generous. God is so loving and merciful that they willingly, that, that, that Jesus willingly sacrificed himself in order that we would have life. He paid for our sins on that cross so you and me would not have to pay for them. He invites us into life because of his death. Yes, that Jesus is surrender Jesus. And if we believe in Jesus, we can have salvation. We can have new life. So we've talked about suffering Jesus. We've talked about surrender Jesus. Now what I want to do is I want to look at John chapter 18 again and look at verse 4. Now what I love about John 
is that the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they talk about the Garden of Gethsemane, they really highlight Jesus' humanity, that he's anxious, that he's in agony, that he's suffering, and, and that's all right. But what's beautiful is John, he actually emphasizes Jesus' divinity, his power, the fact that even in this moment he is in charge and he is in control. Let's read verse 4. It says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And verse 6 reads, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. So what's going on here? What's happening in this moment? Well, yes, Jesus suffered. Yes, Jesus surrendered. But the third reality that we see here is we see glorious Jesus. Glorious Jesus. And what I need us to understand is that when Jesus says these words, in our NIV Bible it says, I am he, but that he is actually added by the translators. In the original Greek, he simply said the words, I am. Now, if you know and understand, the words I am is actually the most sacred, holy name of God. And the, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, they were in such reverence and awe of that name that they would not actually even speak it. When they wrote it, they only wrote the consonants of it, not the vowels, because they didn't even want to write the whole name. So we actually don't exactly know how it was pronounced, because in English they write the letters Y-H-W-H, either Yahweh or Jehovah. In your Bibles, whenever you're reading and you see the word LORD in all capital letters, that is Jehovah, that's Yahweh, that's God's most sacred and holy name. And he revealed his name to Moses, and he had given Moses this call, and he said, Moses, you have to go to Egypt. You have to rescue my people. And he and Moses, they have this conversation in Exodus chapter 3, and Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites, and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And so what we see here is that God reveals himself as Yahweh, Jehovah. I am. And it's the sacred name of God. In fact, it was so sacred that when the scribes would be copying the Bible, when they copied the, the, New, the Old Testament, when they got to Yahweh, they, they would stop, they would go, they would cleanse themselves, they would put on a new change of clothes just to come back and write this sacred name. And here it is, Jesus, he's claiming that name for himself. He's using that name. And it's so powerful, it's so glorious, that a mob of highly trained soldiers falls back because even though they're here to arrest Jesus for one moment, they see a glimpse of of his divine character, of the fact that he is God. They see glorious Jesus. And I love what Leon Morris, a commentator, writes. He says this, that the soldiers had come out secretly to arrest a fleeing peasant. But in the gloom, they find themselves confronted by a commanding figure who so far from running away 
comes out to meet them and speaks to them in the very language of deity. And I think when, when you and I, when we think about Jesus, you know, so often we do think about his humanity. We think about his gentleness. We think about his love. We think about his kindness, that he heals and that he draws near. And all of those things are true. They are actual real realities about Jesus. We, we should think about those things. But let us not forget that Jesus is also glorious. You know, it says in Revelation, John, he, he writes and he sees a picture of Jesus and it is, he, he gets a vision of him as the ancient of days, that his beard and his hair are white showing wisdom, that his eyes are like fire, that in his right hand he holds seven stars, from his mouth comes the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and it says, John writes, that his voice is like rumbling waters. So Jesus is powerful. Jesus is glorious. And I love this. Jesus, when Peter chops off the disciple or the, the, the high priest's servant's ear, Matthew records that Jesus turns to Peter and this is what he says. He says, do you not think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Let me tell you what this means. In Rome, a legion was 5,000 soldiers. So what Jesus is saying is that right now, in heaven, while we're all standing in this garden, there are 60,000 angels that are just waiting. And if I give the word, they can come down and all of this will be taken care of. And so Jesus is saying, I'm powerful, I'm glorious, but I'm laying that down, I'm surrendering that so that I can go to the cross so that I can save the world. Praise God. Praise God. Amen, amen. And, and here's what I think we need to understand. Your prayer life, my prayer life, will get more and more powerful when I think about how powerful Jesus is. Jesus is not weak. Jesus is not pathetic. We're not praying to a Jesus who, who is unable to do things. And the more that I think about how powerful and, and glorious Jesus is, the more I pray and believe that God can move in power. Now, I think it is important to notice that often Jesus' power is not displayed the way that we think he would. Even in this moment, Jesus is powerful, and yet he's displaying that power in a way that's completely opposite than I think. And so sometimes when I pray to powerful, glorious Jesus, I, I get a little bit like concerned because he's not acting the way I think he wants to act. But let me tell you that Jesus is powerful and he's glorious, and when we pray, we can pray with confidence knowing how great he is. All right, we're going to read one more thing. Uh, from this, this passage that's so, so important. Look with me at verse seven. It says, Jesus asked them again, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, let these men go. This happened so that the word he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of these that you gave me. Here, John highlights 
that Jesus is actually commanding the soldiers that are arresting him. And John says, Jesus' words will be fulfilled. This means Jesus is God. Only God's words must be fulfilled. And so here we see that Jesus is King Jesus. He's King Jesus. That's the fourth thing, that Jesus is King Jesus. Jesus is God. He is reigning and he's ruling on the throne. Even when Jesus talked about and thought about his own death, this is what he said in John chapter 10, that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Jesus is king. And can I tell you that right now, in 2022, Jesus is still sitting on the throne. Amen. And I personally, like, I can freak out. I can forget this. And I can look at global events and start looking at inflation or start looking at the political scene or start looking at Russia. I can look at my personal life. I know that each of us, we can look at our plans. We can look at our finances. We can look at our relationships and feel like things are falling apart. But I'm comforted when I consider this church, when I consider my family, when I consider myself, when I think about my future, I'm comforted to know that Jesus is king, that he is sitting on the throne, and that whatever you're walking through today, you are walking through it with a glorious king who loves you and who is for you, and he wants to draw you near to himself. And so we've thought about these beautiful realities about Jesus, and as we close, I just want to share two points of application, two things that we can take away. And the first one is this. When I was in uh, Israel, uh, one of the first places they took us was an olive grove, and it wasn't in Jerusalem, but they started to talk about the fact that Jesus, uh, when he was in uh, this garden, the garden was called Gethsemane. And they taught me that uh, Gethsemane actually means the place of the olive press. And they said that uh, at that time, they would press an olive three times to extract the most oil from it. In the first press, you got the purest olive oil. And that oil was used to anoint kings. And then the second press, you still got very high quality oil from a second press. And so that oil was actually used as a light in the temple. And it was used for medicinal purposes and for healing. And then finally, the third press... The, the oil wasn't as good, it couldn't be eaten, but it was taken and used as soap for cleansing. If you remember, I told you that in Gethsemane, Jesus was pressed three times. Three times he went and prayed, and he knelt down and he said, God, if it's your will that this could go a different direction, then let's take that direction, but not my will but your will be done. And what we see is that just like that, Jesus, he is anointed as king, that he is our light, that he is our healer, that he is our cleanser. And so you can write this down if you want that Jesus rules, he illuminates, he cleanses, and he heals. And so my question to you is this, what, what do you need from Jesus today? He's the great I am. He is who you need him to be. Do you need a king? 
someone to rule and reign and, and guide and direct your life? Do you need light? I'm not sure where to go. I don't know the right direction. I'm, I'm lost. Maybe there's people in here and you walked in and you were lost. And you need Jesus to shine a light on your path. Do you need healing, physical healing, emotional healing? Do you need Jesus to step into your life and bring restoration? And all of us, we need cleansing. Our sins separate us from God, and we need Jesus to cleanse us and wash us of our sins so that we can be white as snow. So that's the first point of application. And the second one is this. I want us to think about the fact that Jesus prayed in this garden. Remember I told you at the beginning that the title is The Tale of Two Gardens. And if you know your Bibles, you know that this is not the first time we see a garden in Scripture. In fact, in the very first chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, God creates a perfect world. And he creates a garden, and in that garden, he places the first humans, Adam and Eve. And he gives them the beauty of creation. He gives them great freedom, but he also says that there's one thing you can't do. You can't eat of the forbidden fruit. But we know that Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. They ignore God's commands. They believe the lies of the enemy, and they eat the forbidden fruit. And and it's no exaggeration to say it ruined everything for all of us. Right? Like, if, if you're looking for someone to, like, blame for your problems, it's literally Adam and Eve's fault. And so Adam and Eve, they ruined everything because when they sinned, sin entered the world. Sickness entered the world. The curse entered the world. And what I want us to see is that in that first garden, mankind rebelled against God. And because of that, ruined everything. But in the second garden, the God-man Jesus He didn't rebel against God. He surrendered to God. He went to the cross. And because of that, won victory for all of us. And all of us now can be saved. So you can write this down, that in the Garden of Eden, Adam failed. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus triumphed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so if you're in this room today, and you're a follower of Jesus... We're, we're just continuing to follow. We're learning more about him so that our lives can be transformed to be like him. But if you're in here today and you don't know Jesus, maybe you have just been exploring the faith for a long time. Maybe you've been a religious person, but, but you've never truly had an encounter with Jesus as your savior. Or maybe you've walked away and backslidden and today is a day when you're gonna come back to God. But I need you to know that there is only one way that we can be saved. And it's by believing in Jesus. That Jesus, he suffered. That he surrendered to God. But as a glorious king, he died on a cross. So that you and I, we could be forgiven and so that we could have life. And if you don't know Jesus, today is the day when you need to come back to him. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you have saved us and rescued us. We are amazed and our hearts are filled with wonder at who you are. Now, God, I want to take a moment and just ask that if there is anyone here who needs to begin a relationship with you, 
or come back to a relationship with you, that you would be speaking to their hearts and that your Holy Spirit would be moving. And if that's you and you know I'm far from God, but, but, but I need to come back to God, just know that God loves you. God is actually speaking to your heart right now and he's drawing you. There are people praying for you. And if you're online or if you're in this room, I just want to give you a chance to say yes to Jesus right now. And so if you do want to begin a relationship with Jesus, whether for the first time or to come back, I just want to ask you in this moment, every head is bowed, every eye is closed, I just want to ask you to raise your hand up in the air. I'll wait for just a moment and give you a chance to do it. Awesome, thank you. Just raise your hand up, and if you could keep that hand raised just so I could see it for a moment. Amen, thank you. Is there anyone else in this room? Awesome, praise God. Thank you, I see you in the back there, appreciate you. Anybody else? We believe that God is moving in this place. We believe that God has an incredible heart for us. And so if you raise your hand, I just want to invite you to pray a prayer. It's not a prayer of magic words, but it is a prayer to say, God, we love you. And we, I want to follow you. I want my sins to be forgiven. And so just pray this prayer in your heart after me. Just say, dear God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he died for my sins. Thank you that he rose again. God, I know that I am a sinner, but I know that you're an amazing savior, that you can save me, that you can change my life, that you can make me new. God, I am a new creation because of what you've done. I'm not leaving here the same person that I walked in. Thank you, God. Help me to follow you. Lead me to people that will help me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.